Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Lawyer Gloria Allred represents 16 women who charged just-arrested girlfriend of Jeffrey Epstein, Jelaine Maxwell, I'm not sure how to pronounce her first name, I think it's Jelaine, Maxwell groomed and then delivered them when they were teens for sexual abuse by Epstein and Maxwell. Maxwell faces life in prison, and of course, I know you've heard, and we've talked about this, that uh, Prince Andrew is a person of interest to police. He gave a disastrous interview to the BBC in which he claimed that he absolutely had no knowledge of a young woman he's photographed having his arm around. She was 17 at the time and said there was a night of sexual activity in London. He says it never happened. Uh, Police want to talk to him. Gloria Allred is the lawyer, as I said, for 16 of the women. She is also inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in the United States and author of Fight Back and Win. Ms. Allred, have you come across a case like this before with, with, with so many people, with so many angles, and with Epstein having been charged and convicted previously and basically allowed to walk? Have you seen a case like this before? Well, exactly all four square on this. Not exactly, no. I do have to... Uh, say, Roy, all 16 of my clients who uh, are victims of Jeffrey Epstein do not allege that Ms. Maxwell was involved um, in their recruitment. Uh, So, um, but uh, I will say, you know, that they are all victims and we're all representing them. And uh, I, I can't disclose what any of them might have told me about Ms. Maxwell. But having said that, there has been no justice for them so far, not real justice, um, because, as you pointed out, early in the two year 2000s and 2008, Jeffrey Epstein was permitted to plead guilty, enter a plea to soliciting acts of prostitution. And then he got a very light sentence and was even allowed to leave jail each day <laughs> to go to work. Um, it was a sweetheart deal. It was not justice for the victims then. And then you fast forward to when he's finally taken into custody. Um, and uh, in uh, 2019, and then mysteriously died uh, at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in New York. And whether that was a suicide or a homicide, I can't say that we know to a certainty at this point. But that was very, you know, disappointing and upsetting to the victims. And because they, many of them had hoped that they would be able to confront Jeffrey Epstein in the court of law, mm-hmm. uh, that is never going to happen now. I had been assured by the then U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Jeffrey Berman, that even though Mr. Epstein was deceased, and he told me this in the courtroom when the victims were able to give their victim impact statement uh, in federal court after Epstein's death, uh, the U.S. Attorney assured me that the investigation would continue and that they were going to look into whoever might have conspired with Epstein to uh, help him to recruit and assist and groom uh, underage girls to be sex trafficked to Mr. Epstein. That's exactly what happened. That's what Miss Ms. Maxwell is now charged with. That's a very serious felony charge and um, the conspiracy charge. She's also charged, of course, with perjury, lying under oath in a civil deposition in a civil lawsuit um, in which she was asked questions about Jeffrey Epstein and what he was doing with young girls. 
Yeah, you just think about the what she's charged with, and then the case, as much as we know about it, charged with, uh, as you said, six counts, including trafficking minors for sex, and then perjury. Charges apply to incidents between 1994 and 1997 and involve three victims, the youngest of which, or who was 14, when uh, Maxwell groomed her. Do you believe there are very nervous men now? Do you expect any surprise testimony from Ms. Maxwell? Well, that's an interesting question, Roy, because, um, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about whether she will be what's called a cooperator, whether in exchange for a plea somewhere down the line to lesser crimes or a crime, whether she'd be willing to give truthful testimony about any others who might have been involved in a conspiracy. And, uh, of course, she has a right to be presumed innocent unless until she's proven guilty in a court of law, but there are powerful men, rich, powerful, famous men, who were in Jeffrey Epstein's circle, who Ms. Maxwell knew. For example, you mentioned Prince Andrew. Uh, she was a, in fact, she was a close friend of Prince Andrew and introduced him to Jeffrey Epstein. So uh, they were all very close together, which is one of the reasons I've continued to call on Prince Andrew to speak to law enforcement and answer their questions, because he also not only was close with Epstein, but he actually was in Epstein's homes. And, of course, Ms. Maxwell is charged with, I mean, criminal allegations that is alleged, are alleged to have taken place uh, in Epstein's home in Manhattan, uh, in Palm Beach, Florida, his home there, his ranch in New Mexico, and in Ms. Maxwell's home in London. Um, and, of course, there are allegations that Prince Andrew, having been uh, at least definitely he was staying with Epstein after Epstein was, you know, entered a plea to soliciting acts of prostitution, stayed with him in his home in Manhattan, I think, for four days. He also was in Ms. Maxwell's home in London and perhaps in other places as well. So he has a lot to, that he could say and know about what was going on in those homes. I'm not saying he knew everything. But he certainly knew some things because obviously there were a lot of young girls coming and going in those homes. Um, and so he should sit for that. He, he sat, as you pointed out, for the BBC for more than an hour giving his statement, which of course was not under oath. Um, he could say whatever he wanted. I hope he told the truth. I don't know. Um, but uh, certainly if he talks to law enforcement, he is going to have a legal duty to tell the truth. He seems to be finding ways to try to avoid and evade uh, sitting there answering questions with law enforcement, trying to portray himself as a victim, saying he's really not getting answers, they're trying to arrange it, or something to that effect, his attorneys. It's really pretty simple. Even the now-acting U.S. attorney who replaced Jeffrey Berman, Audrey Strauss, said at a press conference a few days ago that they would welcome his being interviewed, allowing himself to be interviewed, not paraphrasing, but with law enforcement. Um, he hasn't done that yet, and it's overdue, and it's very painful to victims. It's like a water torture test. Every day there's a drip, drip, drip. Is he going to do it? He's not going to do it. Under what condition will he do it? Why won't he do it? What are the reasons he won't do it? When will he do it? We want to know what it, They're entitled to truth, they're entitled to transparency, and they're entitled to justice. And so far they haven't had any of that. I would like to add, Roy, we are on the path to some justice for some of them in the civil 
system, there's now a claims procedure that's been established, and we're going to be representing many of the 16 clients we represent in the claims procedure where they can apply to be compensated for, uh, you know, their lost wages, their pain and suffering, uh, their therapy bills, their medical bills, and, and, and perhaps some other damages, maybe lost wages, um, in this claims process, which is a completely confidential process. No one will know except their attorneys who's applying for it, and no one will know what they are awarded, if anything, in that process. So it's, that's a good, that's at least good. The money will come from the estate of uh, Jeffrey Epstein, but it will be administrator, uh, administrated by, you know, independent claims administrators. How are your clients doing? I've uh, spoken with, and I'm going to actually open the phone line shortly, and ask people who have been victims of um, sexual misconduct when they were children, when they were minors. Um, and I've talked to people who've been in that situation before, and it's very, very difficult for many of them throughout life. How are your clients handling and dealing with emotionally with the fact that they went through all of this, and now and now here's um, Maxwell being charged, and they'll have to relive it again? Well... It is a it, it is a good point because for some of them it's very triggering, meaning that when they you know hear the name Jeffrey Epstein, when they hear the name you know Jelaine yeah, Maxwell, um, it just then you know touches a nerve and it brings it all back to them and something that some of them have been trying to live with and maybe not having to think about every day and suddenly it's all over the news again right. and they have to then remember all of what they suffered and what was inflicted upon them. So that's difficult. On the other hand, there's hopes again that there'll be some justice and some truth coming out. And, you know, it's not over just because Jeffrey Epstein is deceased. Um, so, you know, but they've been hopeful before, and then, then their hopes have been dashed. So it's kind of a cautious optimism that maybe something will happen. The good news is more people are now coming forward. I have people contacting me that never contacted me before. And because now we have a process completely confidential in this claims process, which, you know, if they were to file lawsuits, it would be public. Uh, so they want their privacy because, you know, some of them, like, still blame themselves and, same, and, and feel ashamed of what happened. Of course, they were taken advantage of. They need not blame themselves, but... They're still on the stage, and this is true of many, many victims of many, many powerful men yeah. that, you know, they, they feel ashamed. And, and that's something that only helps predators because predators want the victim to blame themselves so they won't come after the predator. Right. So through, through a process of healing and maybe support from a therapist and lawyers, um, then they can become empowered to, you know, what I say is become the hero of your own life and help to win justice for yourself. Yeah. Ms. Allred, thank you so much for the time. Always good talking to you, and this is a very important case. It has so many different perspectives and angles to it, and hopefully there will be justice at the end of the uh, of the process, and perhaps even a plea deal. Who knows? But uh, but but I but I hope only the best for the young women who have been so uh, affected for their lives. Good talking to you as always. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Roy. Okay. Bye. Bye. Gloria Allred from Los Angeles.
JKC Trucking is one of America's largest refrigeration trucking firms out of Chicago, and the company's co-owner reacting to the Minneapolis City Council's vote to disband its police department states if this happens, JKC will refuse to conduct business to that city in the future, affecting the food supply. Mike Kucharski is the co-owner of JKC Trucking. He joins us from Chicago. Mr. Kucharski, thank you very much for the time. Do I have it correctly that if they if there's no police department in Minneapolis, your trucks won't go there? Roy, thank you for having me on the show. Yes, correct. Uh, if the uh, Minneapolis Police Department is defunded, we are not going to send our, our our trucks out to to Minneapolis. You know, uh, our JKC supports our drivers, and police is the critical part of protecting our, our drivers uh, on the road. Your concern would be major lawlessness in the city, I guess? Well, you know, when these drivers are on the road, they're pretty much by themselves. Right. Uh, they have nobody else to, to protect themselves. Uh, occasionally, another truck driver. And uh, before, so before COVID or, or the, all these situations happened, you know, our truck drivers were getting attacked by people trying to, you know, steal stuff for their truck, hijack their truck, hijack their their cargo. Uh, this was this was an ongoing thing be, before this. And now, with there's going to be no police to to protect them. These, you know, I've already had a conversation. Most of my drivers have come to me and said to me, hey, are we going to have to go into these states? You know, some of them came to me and said, we are, I am not going to go to this state. You know, they have the right to refuse the load. And, you know, how is this? No load or cargo is worth my driver's life or safety. Yeah. Uh, have you had a sense that other trucking firms are feeling exactly as you do? You know, I believe so. Uh, you know, I, I don't think they're speaking out about it, but uh, I would I would say the majority, yes, uh, you know, feel just as as I do. And why are you speaking out about it? You know, because the, when I started truck driving, you know, uh, I my first trip was to Long Beach, California. I got to the shipper early, and um, <clears throat> an intruder broke my window, jumped in my truck, and I was sleeping in the back. You know, I, I sit up and I'm eye to eye with this person. Uh, and I didn't know what this person was there to, to cause me harm, to steal my truck, to what he was there for. You know, luckily, you know, I chased the guy off with a baseball bat. But, you know, I've been in that situation. You know, my father was a truck driver. I'm a truck driver. I was a truck driver. You know, I, I, I feel for the truck driving community. Yeah, it's a tough job. It is a very difficult job to do. And if you're worried about hijacking, and losing your load and maybe getting physically assaulted. It's not a situation you obviously want to put yourself into. Have you had reaction at all from the, anyone on the council at uh, Minneapolis? No, no, no. I have, I have no reaction from nobody in Minneapolis, or I, I haven't had any government officials or anybody of importance reach out to me, but I, I'd be willing to you know, take their call because I would love to discuss what are we going to do, how are we going to keep our, our, our drivers safe. You know, Truck driving is one of the top ten most dangerous jobs out there, you know. Most deliveries are done early in the morning when it's still dark. How, how are we going to, you know, deliver this product safely to that state? And your product, uh, at least a lot of the time, is food and perishables, right? Correct. Yes, sir. Food and so this is this is these are materials. This is these are loads the city requires. Correct. Yes, and if Minneapolis is going to be in big, big, or state of Minnesota is going to be in, in big trouble. If truck drivers won't deliver essential goods, groceries are, are you know, perishable, what are they going to do? They're going to run out of food within three days, max. Yeah, that is a, that is a, a huge issue. 
Uh, I, I'd be interested to know uh, if you if you hear from uh, the folks at the Minneapolis Council at all, Mr. Kacharski, and I, I do appreciate you coming on the program. I have a I have a sense that other trucking firms would probably do similar, take similar action. Thanks very much for your time. Good talking to you. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Mike Kacharski, co-owner of JKC Trucking out of Chicago, one of America's largest refrigerating trucking firms. So no police department, no deliveries. And again, they do uh, deliver. I'm just looking for the note here. They deliver um, perishables, food, uh, meat, vegetables, fruit. It's, uh, you know, daily essential supplies. So something for the Minneapolis Council to consider. My guest says that defeating COVID is an issue of prioritizing science and uh, that as far as viruses go, COVID is one of the less clever ones. Back with us on the program is Dr. Peter Hotez, Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Health in Houston, Texas. Also co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital for Vaccine Development. Dr. Hotez, thank you so much for the time. And you're challenging the White House to figure out the way to stabilize the nation. Does it all break down for you uh, in, in, in the White House? Yeah, well, I think what we're seeing... Uh, Roy is a pretty intense rise in COVID-19. Uh, we had, you know, over the spring, we had around 35, 30 to 35,000 cases, um, uh, new cases a day. We brought that down to around 15,000, 18,000 cases a day. But now we're seeing this very steep rise again, 40, 50, now around 60,000 cases a day with projections that'll go to 100,000. So, our COVID epidemic is uh, spiraling out of control. And part of it is is the strategy or lack of strategy uh, by the U.S. government. It's been to let the states take the lead and, and the U.S. government will provide backup in terms of uh, supply chain management and gloves and protective equipment and respirators. And, and it's not working. Uh, we clearly need a national roadmap uh, and a national plan. Otherwise, this this will continue to spiral out of control. How much of it might have to do with the with the street protests that took place across the United States and the major population centers just weeks ago? I was watching all these people massing together, and I thought that is a perfect environment for COVID to spread. And maybe several weeks from now, we're going to see the result of that. Is that a factor at all? Well, it's hard to pinpoint any one. Uh, one event. I mean, clearly around our Memorial Day holiday, there was all people were packing the beaches when they shouldn't have been and going into bars and restaurants. And, and then, uh, and I'm sure this July 4th holiday weekend, we'll have a similar problem. Uh, we also just did not have enough public health advocacy. There were lots of plans to partially reopen bars and partially open restaurants. But I think what most of the American population actually heard was, "We're done. It's uh, we're open for business, and uh, and now we're paying the consequences of that." So it's a combination of opening up too early in many parts of the country, not providing that advocacy, and not putting in place all of those pieces of the public health infrastructure that we needed to happen. You uh, you tweet that you're having a particular problem, and you're in Texas, uh, uh, Doctor Hotez, of course. A particular problem with hospitals close to the border with Mexico. What's going on? Yeah, I, I, ha I don't have a lot of firsthand knowledge. I'm hearing reports from colleagues, and we're seeing it in the press that things look pretty pretty dire down at some of the border towns uh, and in South Texas where there's a lot of poverty. You know, here in the U.S., 
COVID-19 is very much a health disparity, more of a disease, often a disease of poverty. So this virus tends to race through low-income neighborhoods where social distancing is harder, where people aren't getting public health messages. So we're seeing it in, you know, African-American, Hispanic, Latinx communities and our Native American populations are getting hit very hard, Navajo Nation and others. Uh, and uh, so we're not doing nearly enough to protect our vulnerable population. It really is a challenge, and it's a complex issue, yet at the same time, I was on your Twitter feed this morning, you're suggesting that COVID, as far as RNA viruses go, is one of the less clever ones. What does that mean, and does that put us closer to a vaccine? Well, by that, I mean it's not nearly as complicated as something like HIV, uh, the virus that causes AIDS. It doesn't uh, have that variation. It's uh, The science writer Carl Zimmer calls it uh, easy prey or a clumsy virus in the sense that it's a pretty straightforward problem. The virus has those spike proteins on the surface. It docks with our with host recept- with receptors on our tissues. And if you block it with an immune response, you can inhibit it. So there, I think that creating a COVID-19 vaccine will not be very difficult. We've been developing coronavirus vaccines for the last decade, and we have one that we're accelerating for uh, global health. Um, and I think there'll be others, but it's going to be a matter of taking the time to uh, test those vaccines adequately for safety and to confirm uh, that they actually work. But the point is now we have the information. We need to know how this virus is transmitted, who are the vulnerable populations. It's just a matter of stepping up now and implementing a national plan and roadmap. And for reasons that I just don't understand, we're we're not prepared to do that. And with still business as usual, let the states figure it out. We'll provide support and help when we can. And and it's and it's it's taking a lot of lives and you're seeing this very steep acceleration where so many other countries, including Canada, have gotten their have gotten their arms around this virus. We haven't. And I think part of it is one letting putting the states in charge in the states, you know, have have a lot of issues uh, in terms of local politics and governors having to deal with the politics from both the right and the left. And it's, it's, they need, they need that cover from the federal government to say, this is what needs to be done. Uh, You have a book coming out in 2021, preventing the next pandemic vaccine diplomacy in an age of anti-science. I find that title very intriguing, and I find it disturbing, too. What is, what's the fundamental position here? The fundamental point of the book is we've actually made great progress uh, in new vaccines and other technologies. The problem is we've, uh, and we were making great progress for the first 15 years of this new 21st century. Then in, starting in 2015, Things started to unravel a bit because of mostly social forces such as war, political collapse, urbanization, shifting poverty, and and also a component of climate change. And that was pre-COVID, and now with COVID-19, things are really off the rails. So we've uh, lost a lot of the uh, gains that we made in public health, and we're going to have to figure out how to bring it back. And again, now things are so chaotic with the U.S. government severing ties with the with the World Health Organization, 
um, the, this nationalism that's going into vaccines. There's even a new term that's out there called vaccinationalism. So you have the Chinese vaccine, the American vaccine, the British vaccine, the European vaccine. It doesn't work that way. You need international cooperation to successfully develop and deploy vaccines. So we're seeing, you know, ideologies uh, take precedence over pragmatic approaches to solving disease problems. So we're going to see a delay in in a truly effective international and global vaccine because of this attitude? I think think so. Um, We're trying to buck that trend. Uh, at Baylor and Texas Children's, we have a partnership with uh, an organization, PATH, based in Seattle, that's worked a lot with the Gates Foundation in the past to develop a low-cost uh, COVID-19 vaccine for global health. And we're hoping we can, uh, we're working with India first to see if we can scale it up there. And hopefully we can announce more details about that in a couple of weeks. But that's what it's going to take, we think, you know, specific initiatives targeted for global health, and and because with this vaccinationalism, uh, it doesn't look like it's we're going to see those international partnerships accelerate anytime soon. Uh, Dr. Hotez, thank you very much for the time. I also want to let our listeners know that you have a new book out now, Poverty and the Impact of COVID-19, and that is available now. Uh, we'll talk to you again, and I do appreciate you coming on the show today. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for uh, keeping uh, these issues at the forefront. Absolutely. Dr. Peter Hotez uh, joining joining us from uh, Houston, where he is the co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital for Vaccine Development and dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Health in Houston. Senator Denise Batters joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network, conservative senator from Saskatchewan. And uh, I've known the senator for some time, and uh, and I know Denise. Thank you very much for coming on the show. And I, I, I you, uh, you had a very interesting time when you delivered a speech in the Senate recently, and you challenged the uh, the government on spending. Now I, I looked at this, and when I first saw the uh, the information, I thought, oh yeah, they've spent a huge amount of money, and they're not being responsive to Canadians, and they're not being responsible and explaining, and we don't have debates in Parliament as we should about this, and the Senate, the, you know, the Chamber of Sober Second Thought should be really getting involved in this as well. And then I saw something that you wrote, and it just absolutely flabbergasted me, floored me, but one piece particularly of spending legislation, and it was a lot of money, was passed in 46 seconds. I don't know what to say. I didn't either. Yeah. Um, thanks very much, first of all, for having me on, Roy. Really great to be on your show again and uh, to let Canadians know about just what is going on in Parliament these days over the last few months. Yes, we have a global pandemic that, of course, the government needs to treat very seriously, and the opposition has been very good about doing that. However, we do need to have the necessary levers of Parliament to make sure that these uh, pieces of legislation they're putting through for so much money are properly debated because sometimes we find major flaws in them that are corrected. And this particular 46-second bill you're talking about, it passed the Senate on Friday, May 13th, or sorry, Friday, March 13th. It was Bill C-11. It was a supply bill. It was the day that the government had basically shut down Parliament. Um, 
And I had already left Ottawa because uh, the night before we didn't know we were sitting the next morning. Um, that just came out about all of a sudden. They all of a sudden realized they needed to pass the new NAFTA bill, which went through with 24 minutes of debate in the Senate. Again, that's just unheard of. But yes, this particular supply bill, it was a $44 billion bill, and it was passed in 46 seconds, so almost a billion dollars a second. That's just, it's just mind-boggling how that could possibly happen. How does that happen? How does the bill get to the Senate? I know Parliament is essentially uh, um, shuttered now. We, We all know that, and there's concerns about that. We spoke with the Parliamentary Budget Officer on this program a few weeks ago, and Mr. Giroux expressed reservations about uh, this virtual parliament that we have. But how does it happen that Bill C-11, worth $44 billion, as you write, whistled through the Senate in 46 seconds at an unbelievable rate of almost a billion dollars per second? How does that happen? Well, like I say, that was the day. The day before, we had been sitting in in, uh, the Senate as per our normal schedule. We were anticipating having a one-week break and then coming back after that. And then all of a sudden, late that night, the government called back um, the Senate for the next day because they decided, okay, we're actually going to be, um, you know, suspending Parliament for five weeks instead of one week. And um, we need to pass some of these bills very quickly. We need to pass this new NAFTA bill. So, like I say, to pass a NAFTA bill with the ramifications that has in 24 minutes of debate. And then there was another supply bill in 90 seconds. And then this particular one, $44 billion in 46 seconds. And, of course, in his hurry to pass those bills through, the government Senate leader didn't even mention that day that senators were passing the $115 million Senate budget in that legislation. So, um, you know, we've, on the conservative side, we've long been raising concerns about how much money um, the new fake independent Senate that Trudeau has is costing, but we didn't even have a chance to debate or discuss that because that passed through along with the rest of that no, I think we, as you said, and we all understand, these are difficult times. It's a pandemic. We want to keep people safe. And uh, the government has a de- degree of responsibility to provide um, a backstop for Canadians, and that, uh, that, that would be accepted. But there is, uh, there, is, there is need for proper debate on the money that is being spent, because ultimately that is owed. And if we're looking at a potential $300 billion deficit for this uh, fiscal year, which the parliamentary budget officer told us is possible, and a trillion-dollar national debt, that has to be debated. We have to know, because that's going to have to be paid back by future generations. And just to, to whistle three, as you use your term, whistling, whistle these things through the Senate in seconds is is outrageous. It is. And now we find out Canada's debt is going to exceed $1 trillion this year. I mean, when Minister Morneau just recently came to the Senate, he wouldn't even tell us what the amount is, told our Senate leader that he could send in, he could um, email in questions about specific numbers and specific answers to his uh, staff. I mean, we have a finance minister that didn't even tell the Senate how much the debt was or how much the deficit was, you know, telling us you have to wait for his fiscal snapshot, which is coming this week. But frankly, the serious situation that we have going on right now in our economy, we need to have something much more than a fiscal snapshot. What is but that? Is, well, the, uh, I, Senator, you know, what, is, what, is a, what is a fiscal <laughs> snapshot? I think it's something that's very fitting for an Instagram PM who covers through selfies and photo ops. I mean, that's a word that no one from the financial industry has heard before. And I guess it's a way to avoid accountability. And that's just what's gone on throughout all of this. The Trudeau government, with the cooperation of the NDP, shut down in-person sittings of the House of Commons. 
And then there was a time this spring where the Trudeau government alone shut down the Senate sittings this spring. And all of this just allows them to avoid answering for their spending. Well, I'll tell you, it wouldn't matter to me if it was the Conservatives, the Liberals, or the NDP. If that kind of spending is taking place, yes, let's understand what is necessary. But let's also have responsibility and be responsive and explain to Canadians through our institutions of government what you're doing, why you're doing it, and do it precisely. Don't try to hide it. And we also had the situation just weeks before that where the government tried to sneak through some changes to legislation which would have allowed the Liberals with their minority government to not be responsible or responsive to anybody as far as the spending is concerned for some 21 months, if I have that correctly. Exactly, you do. And actually, some of that, we, the Conservative opposition was able to get them to back down on some pretty major parts of that very scary bill. It was actually called Bill C-13. However, something that's just recently come out with this We Charity scandal now, um, I was looking into where did they get the legislative authority for this almost $1 billion government program that was to be administered by the We Charity. And from my um, assessment of it, it looks like the legislative authority for that $912 million contract seems to be part of that Bill C-13, Part 3. There's a provision which allows one cabinet minister with the finance minister's agreement to receive, quote, all money required to do anything. Like there's a sunset clause put on it of this September now instead of um, considerably more months to go. However, um, it seems like this massive We Charity contract and all of its significant flaws did not even go through cabinet, but was approved by only two ministers. And of course, that Bill C-13, it was scary enough to begin with. But now that we find out that um, that particular bill, which, by the way, Bill C-13 passed the Senate in only 45 minutes of debate in March, it was on one of those one-day sitting time frames. Um, so there's very there's a lot more frightening yeah. elements that we're yeah. going to be discovering for years to come. Well, exactly. And uh, when it came to uh, debating in Parliament, the uh, the entire spending bill, the entire spending uh, by the government during the pandemic, only four hours were dedicated to that. And again, that's something that the parliamentary budget officers talked to us about, and he didn't seem particularly impressed with that reality. Senator, I appreciate no. you coming on the show. Thank you so much for. If I could get, if I could get, if I, look. A billion dollars a second. I tweeted out earlier, when I go and buy a burger, I take longer than that to figure out whether I can afford the regular burger or whether I can spend a little bit more money and get the all-dressed. Exactly. You said it. And also, when Bill Morneau is promising energy sector that he's going to have aid to them, which is so direly needed within hours or days, and then I question him 90 days later in late June on his broken promise, and he pretends he never made it, says there was a misunderstanding. Well, so he's very, you know, um, he doesn't understand the time frames on that, but he sure knows how to get bills passed quickly. Okay, you're getting political now on me, Senator. Stop it. <laughs> well, people might have expected that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the time. Good talking to you, Denise. Thank Take you care. very much. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Senator Denise Batters, a conservative senator from uh, Saskatchewan. A billion, billion dollars a second. That's a lot of money. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.